Good morning. We are continuing our sermon series this morning, walking through the book of Hebrews, focusing on the supremacy of Christ. Um, Last week, Todd preached from chapter 8, looking at how in Christ the new covenant uh, is established, takes over for the old covenant. And this morning we're going to look at something kind of similar, but kind of from a different emphasis. We're going to look at how the old covenant ritual system, specifically the atonement of sins, was incomplete in a shadow of what was to come in Christ. Ultimately, we're going to see that in Christ's sacrifice, we find life. Just to, um, as we get into this, address the elephant in the parking lot. This is my last time preaching here at Hope Chapel as your associate pastor. Um, As that email went out this week, um, letting you all know about our transition out of leadership here. I want to say up front, um, because we will address it later in the sermon, I, I want to address it here, though, because I don't want it to be a distraction for us. One of my favorite things I got to do over the past five or six years here is preach. And I want uh, this morning to be no different. Um, even though it's my last time preaching, the, the word of the Lord is what matters during this time. And I want to faithfully exposit it for us this morning. So let's, let's dive into this text. And maybe at the end, we'll do some, some parting words together. The passage uh, that we just read from Hebrews is long, it's confusing, it's a little convoluted. There's some exegetical issues that we'll try to uh, weave our way through and hopefully we can break it down. But funny enough, I think the main point of this sermon is actually really simple. What the author of Hebrews is trying to describe to us is that in Christ's sacrifice, we have life. It's because Christ sacrificed himself that we have life and eternal life itself. And so it talks a lot about the old covenant, sacrificing of animals, the talk of blood, priestly duties, inheritance, all of these things. But at the heart of it, it's in sacrifice we find life. And we know this, right? All uh, often art and movies and television will show this. I think of like Captain America and the the first movie uh, of his movies, uh, the way they decide to give him the super soldier serum is because like uh, a live grenade's thrown, he throws his body on it, right? He's willing to sacrifice himself to give life to everyone else. It wouldn't be my last sermon if I didn't mention Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter willingly walking into the woods to sacrifice himself for life for everyone else. Over and over and over again in life, we are seeing that it's through the sacrifice of people that life is found for others, and we also know this in, uh, in real life as well. I think of all of the women in our congregation right now who are pregnant, literally sacrificing their body to give life to someone else. I think of community and the way that we live with one another and how constantly community causes us to sacrifice for one another, to bring life to one another. This is just the way that the world works. And and there's a reason for this pattern. The reason that there is this pattern in the way that the world works, because it's the way of Jesus. What this passage shows us is that only in sacrifice could the people of Israel find life. The inheritance that was promised by God that they would uh, be his people, that he would bless them, that he would never forsake or leave them was all contingent on the atonement of their sin. 
all contingent on this ritual system that they had, that God had set up for them to atone for their brokenness and their sin. They had to sacrifice something regularly so that they could live as God's people, so they could be adopted sons and daughters. But this was always a shadow of what was to come in Jesus. This was always pointing to something else. The system was always set up as a placeholder because the blood of animals wasn't enough truly to atone for sin, for my sin and for yours. So because humanity sinned and we rebelled against God, only a human could pay our penalty. I like to think of this Old Testament ritual system as um, like checks. For those of you that are under 30, I'm sorry. Checks are this thing. Um, it was like a promise payment. That was a joke. I'm just kidding. I know you know what checks are. When we write a check, it's like a placeholder for money, right? You write a check, you give it to a person, but it's not until they bring that check to the bank and it's cashed, is it fulfilled. The Old Testament system in a lot of ways was like writing a bunch of checks that one day was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and through his death and resurrection. So Jesus, fully God but fully man, became the sacrifice for us. That's what the entire Old Testament ritual system was uh, pointing to, just like we said. So we know this. In his sacrifice, we have life. This is why we're here. This is the locus of our belief, the heart of the gospel. That's why we come to the table every single week. But we struggle with this idea. I do and if walking with you guys the past couple of years is anything to um, say something, y'all do too. We allow our past sins to hang over our heads or around our neck like a noose, forgetting that the death of Christ paid for them already. We feel distant and alone. We forget that because Christ died and rose again, he's interceding for us right now. We lose hope and fear, and we fear death and the unknown because we forget that in Christ we have a promised future of eternity when we lose sight of the gravity of the sacrifice of jesus we lose sight of the life that we have right here and right now with him so this morning i want us to correct it and some of you are here and you're struggling some of you here this morning uh you you feel purposeless some of you are here this morning you feel hopeless you could be feeling beat up by the world or by past decisions you might be here this morning and your sin feels overwhelming. You could be struggling with self-contempt or hatred this morning. You could be feeling lonely and isolated. And I, I want to say that all of these struggles and feelings are real this morning and they have space in even this medium of this preaching. But my hope for us this morning is that even in giving space for those things, in the midst of it all, I want to remind us that we actually can find life, that we can find fulfillment and contentment and true life in the brokenness and difficulty of, war, of, of life. Because the starting place to find that, to experience true life, the way it was always meant to be experienced, is starting with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Everything else can be taken from us. Anything can happen to us. And we could even lose everything. But we can never lose that which his sacrifice accomplished for us. You can't and I can't. And in this passage, there's this really cool past and present and future kind of aspect to it. And it susses out this idea in different ways. 
So these first three verses, 11 through 14, uh, we see that Christ purifies us in his sacrifice. This is kind of the past uh, posture. In verses 15 through 24, we see that Christ pleads for us because of his sacrifice. That's kind of the present reality. And then in 25 through 28, we see that Christ promises us eternity through his sacrifice. That's kind of the future aspect. So we can have life in the past, present, and future because of his sacrifice. He purifies us, he pleads for us, and he promises us eternity. Okay, so first, Christ purified us in his sacrifice. Verse 11 really roots us in this past, present, and future understanding uh, by firmly rooting us in the work of Christ and what he accomplished for us in the past. It uses the aorist tense, which is the um, completed past tense. It says this, but when Christ appeared, that's the past piece, as a high priest of the good things that have come. It's interesting in these verses, we, we've talked about this a couple of times through the weeks. Typically, uh, Jesus as a high priest is, uh, or sorry, what the high priest typically does in this Old Testament ritual system is he mediates on behalf of the people. And there's always a sacrifice that he mediates, he uses to mediate. But what these verses show us is that when Jesus became the high priest, he didn't just mediate the sacrifice to achieve this atonement in the past. He became the sacrifice itself. This is where it says in uh, 11 and 12, he, uh, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption, the priest himself became the sacrifice for us. And the tent of meaning here is the holiest place to the Israelites. It was the place where the, the presence of God himself resided. Resided. That's where the high priest would go to make that sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, I entered into that place myself, and it was through my blood I became the sacrifice that promises eternal redemption and coverage of sin for all of you. And it says in 13, that the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? So how much more will the blood of the Savior, God himself, the God-man, how much more will that achieve the forgiveness of sins and the purification of our consciousness than the old system did? How much more effective is it? And what he says is that it's for good, for all time, for eternity. So we find life today in Christ's sacrifice because in his sacrifice we are purified from all of our sins all the sins we've committed in the past all that we will commit and are committing have been paid for by the blood of jesus christ it's a guarantee you can't change it if we've placed faith in him on the cross jesus claimed it's finished this is what he was getting at the power of sin and death no longer have a hold on those who believe in him it's over So the, we don't live this way, though. I don't, at least. I let the past hang over me constantly. And walking alongside many of you over these past couple of years, I've, I've noticed you, you all do the same. 
I know for me, the way this plays out in my life is contempt for myself. As we grow, um, everyone goes through different iterations of themselves, right? That's just part of growth. Those of you um, that are maybe a little healthier than me can look at past iterations of yourself and have grace for yourself. I often look at past iterations of myself and the areas of sin and immaturity and need for improvement, and I have contempt for myself there. It's hard for me to look back on where I was three years ago, five years ago, ten years and twenty years ago, and say, uh, I can't believe who I was then, or what I believed then, or that I did that. And it leads me to contempt. Maybe you're the same. Some of you so let your past sins and brokenness and iterations hang over you in the present that it keeps you from worshiping God, from living free. But the promise of this passage is that Christ's sacrifice purified our past. It doesn't have to hang over our head. It doesn't have to be a noose around our neck because the blood of Christ purified those sinful and broken iterations of ourselves. And the thing that's so incredibly hopeful and helpful about this passage is the reminder that we couldn't pay this penalty ourselves. We aren't able to do that. No matter how hard we try to atone for what we have done or who we are, it's never enough. And though we try, we keep trying, it's never enough. Because only in Christ's sacrifice is it enough to purify us. It's only reliant on His sacrifice and His blood. Our salvation rests completely and utterly on Him, and that's actually where freedom is. If that's true, and hang with me here, if our salvation is completely contingent on Him, then our past sins cannot disqualify us from his love. If there's nothing we can do to achieve our salvation, then there's nothing we can do to be disqualified from it if we put our faith in him. It rests on him alone. Only he could go to the holiest of places and become the sacrifice for me and for you. So don't let your brokenness and your sin and your shame and from your past hang over you today. It's taken away from you in the blood that was poured out in Christ's sacrifice. Don't let self-contempt or self-hatred be your story because Christ's sacrifice covered you then and it covers you now. And the lesson I constantly have to remind myself is uh, if I think I'm okay now, I'm not because I always look back and think, man, I can't believe I was there then. So my future self is going to look back on me now and be like, bro, what were you doing, you know? You got to remember that. But it doesn't just purify us in the past. Um, we need to be reminded that Christ pleads for us in our present. And that brings me to my second point. Christ's sacrifice spells life for us because he's pleading for us right now. And verses 15 through 17 kind of really s- spell this out. It says he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive We are called and we received the promised eternal inheritance. And since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Christ is mediating this covenant right now between us and God. And this real uh, practical implication from this kind of piece, we've talked about it a lot over the past couple months. It's that Christ sees us in our sin. 
He sees us in our need and our brokenness. He hears our grief. We're not alone. He's empathetic and sympathetic for us in that. When God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ imputed over us. And He gives us this analogy um, in verses 16 and 17 to spell this out. He says, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it's alive. So our salvation through Christ's sacrifice was like a will. It was written to us, to the people of God in the Old Testament, and their ritual system. And it was a shadow of what was to come. But it was only fulfilled, we can only step into that inheritance as God's people, when Christ died. A will doesn't come into effect until the death of the one who wrote it dies. So Christ had to die for us to fully experience our adoption, our blessing, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the church, all of these different things that we claim to as God's people. And then for about four verses, the author of Hebrews ties the sacrifice to blood and says how the blood of Christ covers us. I'm not going to go through them. You can look at them. But in a lot of ways, uh, this talk of blood is uncomfortable for us. Um, Mayor of Easttown, great show. You should watch it um, if you're of age. <clears throat> and uh, there's a cop in it who's, you know, squeamish about blood, and he can't look at it. I'm like, how are you a cop if you're squeamish about blood? I don't understand. But um, a lot of us are squeamish. That was for free, by the way. Sorry. Um, we don't engage with blood and suffering often, right, unless we're in the medical profession. But it was a way of life for ancient Israel. It was a harder way of life. And, but they, one thing that they did understand was death and sacrifice, the spilling of blood. So the author of Hebrews is talking to his audience, and he's directly tying blood to life and the life-giving nature of blood. And we do, in our modern ears and understanding, understand this too, because we know that uh, because the blood that flows through our vein, veins, we are able to live. And if too much of it's spilled, we die. Our body shuts down. In the same way, the blood of Christ must cover us right now for our spirits to be alive. And he finishes this section in 23 through 25 saying, It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's saying this was a copy of what it was always supposed to be. It covered them for a time, but Christ's blood covers us forever. And where God would make his presence known to Israel in the tent of meeting, Christ, in the very presence of God himself, right now, because he died and rose again, makes us, through our being united to him, present with God himself. Here's what I mean. This is a lot. This is confusing. But I'm going to try to break it down for us in this paradox. Why would we need Jesus to plead for us? Have you ever considered that? We talk often about Jesus being in the presence of God, mediating and pleading on our behalf. It's kind of confusing. If God's all-knowing, if he knows everything, if he's sovereign, why is Jesus there still mediating and pleading on our behalf? Why does he need that? Well, he doesn't. But he doesn't. So why does he do it? That's his role. Not because God needs him to, but because that's the role that Jesus plays in glory. 
Jesus is constantly reminding God of our needs, our grief, our brokenness, our sin, but also our triumphs, our glory, our good works, our kingdom living. Because in reminding God of those things, God is glorified. And in reminding God of those things, Jesus is glorified in God's presence. Jesus pleads on our behalf because it glorifies God to do so. And it's Jesus' role and pleasure to do it. And I was writing and researching this week, verse 24 kept standing out to me. Because it says, For Christ has entered not to holy places made with hands, which are copies, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What a complex but simple thing. Because Christ died and rose again, he's in the presence of God. But hang with me. And as I mentioned this just a minute ago, I want to really bring it to your attention now. We know that Paul uses in Christ language a lot in in the New Testament. In a lot of his letters, he talks about us as Christians being in Christ. What does it mean for us to be in Christ? It means that we are united. I am united to Christ. You are united to Christ. As a body, we are united to Christ, body and spirit. There's this beautiful interweaving of our personhood in Jesus and the linking of the Holy Spirit to Jesus that happens when we put faith in him. So this is why evangelicals have always used the terminology asking Jesus into your heart. That's nowhere in the Bible, but that's how they kind of get to this idea of us being united to Christ, in Christ. But we rarely take it a step farther, but maybe we should. If Christ lives in us and we live in Christ, where is Christ now? He's with God the Father. He's raised in glory. So that means that in some way, we too are raised in glory right here and right now in the presence of God the Father through our uniting to Christ. Right now. This means that you, your status as Christ follower is a big deal. You are in the presence of God the Father right now in a mysterious way. Your status as believer is weighty. It means something. The sacrifice of Jesus means something extravagant and glorious and beautiful for you right here and right now in the presence of God the Father. But it's also freeing. You're not alone. You have Christ in you. You are connected to him. You have the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through you to connect you, to unite you to Jesus Christ So this is weighty, but it's freeing. Grace is yours. Forgiveness is yours. You are not your own, and that's actually the most freeing truth about you this morning. You are Christ's. He is in you, and you are in him. You are not your own, because you are in the hands of the person who paid the ultimate sacrifice for you. That's where life is. True life, fulfillment, and contentment is found there. And that brings me to my final point. Christ's sacrifice spells life for us. We're purified of our sins. We are pleaded for by being united to Christ. And finally, we're going to see that we are promised eternity. Verses 25 and 26 say, Now, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. What an interesting point the author of Hebrews is making. So if Jesus was the same as the Old Testament ritual system, if there was no difference except that he became the sacrifice, then that means that he would have to 
constantly be sacrificed and there would be a continual suffering and he would have to keep dying so that our sins could be atoned for. But verse 6 says, as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because he was God, because he was perfect man, he was able to give the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice that was fulfilling all that the Old Testament ritual system was pointing to, to end sin for good, for eternity. His sacrifice is a promise that all that is broken will come undone and be restored. That all that is not right in this world will go away. That as far as the curse is found, Christ's sacrifice would make blessings come. And he seals the passage with this promise that Christ will come again and claim us as his own to bring his kingdom here on earth. It says, and just as it was appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He's dealt with it. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the promise of our future, that because Christ willingly died for me and for you, when he comes again, it won't be to die again. It won't be to suffer again. It won't be to offer himself as a sacrifice again. It will be to come in glory. It'll become in victory. It'll become and finish what was started at the cross. The slow restoration of all things that began at Calvary will come to fruition completely when the king returns to his creation to claim it. And we will be claimed alongside all of his creation as the crown jewel and we will be made right and whole and good again. And mankind's home will be what it was always meant to be, perfect. And we will dwell with God again as it was in Eden. May that day come. So because this is our future, we live in kingdom days here and now. Eternity has started for you now. And because our future is certain, because that is so certain for me and for you, our present has to change. In light of eternity that is promised, the way we move into the world must change. We as Christians, as Christ followers, as kingdom workers, as agents of God's blessing, this is what our call is. We must be a foreshadowing of eternity to a world that's desperately in need of it. We have to be a taste of what is to come. This is the application of this last piece of this passage. We are called to bring that kingdom, that eternity that's coming to a world that is in ruin, that is struggling with the effects of sin. When I was growing up, I was told that I had two calls as a Christian. Two. Evangelism and sin management. Tell others about Jesus. Manage your sin. The reason I think why I've been in ministry these past 10 years I think the thing that's driven me specifically in my past five and a half years with you guys is that that's not nearly a big enough call for us. We are set apart for more than evangelism and sin management. We are set apart for far more than evangelism and sin management. This passage reminds us that our call is so much bigger than that because we are to be a foreshadowing of heaven to a world that needs it. We are to be a shadow of eternity. And when this is our call, when our call is kingdom of God big, when our call is creation big, when it's, when it's that big, everything changes. 
We live counterculturally indifferent. It'll cause us to be something else, God's agents of blessing. So in a world that's suspicious of one another, we must move into the world willing to risk trusting one another. In a world that's becoming increasingly callous, we must continue to work on making our hearts soft. In a world that uh, constantly reimagines what truth is, we must hold dear to the truth of the gospel. In a world that constantly re- uh, is adrift in just about every way possible, we have to hold fast to the anchor that is our soul in Jesus Christ. In a world that holds on to grudges and bitterness, we have to choose to make forgiveness and repentance a lifestyle. In a world that hates one another, man, we have to embody and cling to and lavish the love of Jesus Christ on one another. In a world that ignores the cries of the oppressed, we must listen. In a world that makes politics their religion, we got to cling to the gospel. In a world that weaponizes Christianity, we as Christians must willingly lay our lives, our positions of power, and our will and the desires down for the sake of the world, because that's the way of Christ. So when eternity is guaranteed, excuse me, We can do that together. Sorry. I'm like a child when I cry. I apologize. I'm like a really, it's not graceful when I cry. My voice gets high. I'm sorry. (laughs) As a point of personal privilege, God, I think I could get through. (laughs) You've been that peace of heaven and restoration to me and to my family. You've been so incredibly gracious with me and my nerdy illustrations. You've forgiven me in my blunders and my mistakes when I've said the wrong things. You've been patient with me in my youthful missteps. You've been kind to me when I didn't deserve it. You've forgiven me when I've hurt you, and you've accepted my repentance when I've asked it. You brought my family into your lives and treated us like your own family, so thank you, Hope Chapel. You've been this for us. You've embodied this restoration to me and my family that's promised to us in the gospel, and we won't forget it. So thank you for that. And my encouragement is, going forward, laying your lives down for the sake of others is the way of Christ. It's where you will find life. In him sacrificing himself for us, we find life. But it's also in us sacrificing for one another that we also find life. So live a life that way in light of what Christ has done for you. And you will continue to Not you will, but you will continue to make me proud. Amen.